Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now, let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild. This is episode number 15, Meet a Biologist, part 2. Today we're going to finish up our interview with Janine Flegel. She's a wildlife biologist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission, uh, specifically in the deer and elk section. In today's episode, we will talk about some of her favorite and least favorite parts of her job. Uh, We'll even touch on whether she would consume venison from a deer that is known to be CWD positive. uh, And just sort of general wrap up to the interview. So... Uh, If you haven't listened to part one, go back, listen to last week, uh, episode number 14. Uh, It'll definitely get you in the flow uh, of our conversation for uh, part two. We just sort of pick right back up where we left off. We'll see you on the other side. I am a uh, religious reader of that blog. Uh, it's just fascinating information that gets put out there from that study. Uh, so, but as a hunter, what, I mean, how does that help me? I, I mean, I like reading it because I find it interesting, but how can I look at the information that's being presented and have that as a way to, to help me find deer whenever I'm looking for them in the woods? Well, I think the take-home message from that is good luck. Uh, we have, we have a lot of deer collared and I think, um, the deer forest study of course was, was started because we, we wanted to understand how deer interacted with, uh, different forest measures because to have healthy deer, you need healthy forests. I mean, to have healthy anything, you need healthy habitat. Uh, and to understand how those two interacted. Now, uh, how does that help a hunter? Not really help him, but the byproduct of that study kind of gives hunters an insight into the deer world because we have oodles of location data all times of year. And you know, during hunting season, those GPS callers pick up to take locations every 20 minutes to understand how deer move and, and with hunters in the woods and things like that. And, of course, we have very interesting uh, location data during the rut and things like that. And if you were – and we have focused a lot on, or with the blog on those deer movements just to get it just to try to relay to people that, you know, you see all these articles with regard to patterning a buck and, you know, everybody seems to have a trail cam now out there. And I'm a big fan of trail cam. They're a whole lot of fun. You get to see, you know, basically it's a window into the woods. Uh, But you can be watching a deer for months and then you go out to try to hunt him and he is nowhere to be found. Uh, And our, our GPS data show that, that they are just everywhere. And while you as a hunter can only be one place. So hunters that are 
hunters are at a severe disadvantage when it comes to hunting deer because deer have it all over us. I, I think part of uh, that blog is what, I mean, I, I kind of already knew this, but it definitely uh, reinforced it that it's better to be lucky than good if you're a hunter. <laughs> yeah, ex- experience. A lot, a lot of has, it comes down to luck. Yeah, experience in the woods, uh, trying to find deer, uh, and you know specifically certain ones and things like that. That has definitely taught me that uh, that is the case. That it's definitely better to be to be lucky than extremely good because they. And that's something that I, that I have noticed uh, from reading that blog is is just the the change in behavior in certain parts of the season and even from before the season to during the season and just sort of where they go. It's, it's, um, you think it should be easy, but it's not at all. <laughs> right. Right. And and that's really, uh, you know, I think our perspective as people um, is I've seen this deer here he comes, you know, he's past the trail cam here. I know he generally lives in this area, which, okay. But how do you know that's the, how do you know what tree to sit at or be up to make sure he walks past you? You know, it kind of is, I don't know. I mean, certainly if you, if you are a hunter and you spend time in the woods prior to the season and scout, yeah, it's going to give you a leg up, but that doesn't guarantee that that deer is going to walk within, within range <laughs> uh, when you're actually out there during the season. And some of our deer make crazy movements. You know, they're, they're, they're obviously the exception to the rule, but, you know, our most famous buck went in – died in the place he visited one time um, prior to uh, prior to him healing over from whatever he did. We still don't know what happened to him. Um, but where he died, he had only visited one time, and we had him collared for over a year. So why did he go back up there? It's just like, wow. You know, and that's the other thing. We find with these GPS collars, which when I was a graduate student, we didn't have GPS. I We had you know, VHF, I always want to say VHS, but it's VHF <laughs> radio callers. And, you know, I was out there every day uh, taking an azimuth from two different locations to try to biangulate, you know, the location on this deer. Now, with these satellites and GPS callers, we, and, and, you know, with the VHF caller, you can only get so many locations in a day. But with these GPS callers, we can get, you know, depending on how much battery life you have and how many locations you want, you can get a lot. So we can track deer movements now um, a lot more or get a lot more information on where they go and when they go. So, you know, this time of year, does are getting ready to have fawns. We have a couple of, of does that go to the same area every spring and summer and then go back to their, you know, quote, normal home range where we caught them originally in in the fall. So it's definitely given us, I think, a, um, 
a more holistic picture of these deer that, and of course, you know, I, I would say that deer have got to be the most studied species out there. You know, there's a gazillion deer projects um, and reams and reams of data on them, yet we're still learning new stuff, which is just a testament to how complex a critter can be. Yeah, it, it is, you know, a lot of, I feel like a lot of people at the very, at least in the beginning, so they start looking into it, uh, if they ever do, uh, we sort of put ourselves above these other animal species. But when you really start looking into some of the research about them, and like you said, we, we're still constantly learning things about deer, uh, they're much more complex and a lot smarter than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I say we are at a, every hunter, in my opinion, is at a severe disadvantage uh, in the woods when it comes to a deer. A deer has it all over them. Um, and, and that's the other thing. We have found that if a deer lives through its first hunting season, it makes it even harder to harvest that deer because now they kind of know the safe area or, you know, they don't, it's not so, it's not very, it's not cognitive like we would think, oh, hey, it's time to go to my safe spot. Um, but they just know that's the, that's where they need to be this particular time of year, and that's where they go. And, yeah, so, if, and some of these other, like some of our antlerless deer, they routinely live into their teens, for crying out loud. We have double-digit does out there. And I think the only way they get harvested is that they have a moment of senility where they kind of forget because, you know, you have a 10-year-old doe out there and she knows everything and good luck. Yeah. Yeah. The, the deer are just, I, they have a ridiculous amount of respect from, from people like me and Talon who understand just, I mean, how tough it is to even see the deer, let alone uh, get a chance uh, during hunting season. Right. And, and that's the, yeah. And, and even, you know, everything about them makes them completely and utterly perfectly adapted to where they live, you know, from, from their ears to their nose, to their coat. Um, you know, their sense of smell is incredible. They can hear things. They're, their coat just makes them completely blend in with their background. Um, but that's what millennia of, you know, evolution does. It, it produces the best, you know, the best prototype, so to speak, for survival. And, and that's what deer are. I mean, they're a prey species. That's, I mean, we're not the only ones that hunt them over you know history and they need they're built for survival and, and that's that's definitely what they do yeah and their uh ability their resiliency and their ability to to adapt uh you know just the way that they can live in state forests of pennsylvania or in suburbia uh even some living in some urban settings or even the ones that are living in western areas that have far less food availability compared to the east. I mean, the fact that, that the white tail has such a, a big range 
of where they're able to not just survive but also even thrive is absolutely amazing. Yeah, it it really is, and that and that's one thing with regard to uh, deer is their incredible uh, their incredible reproductive capacity because you know they're a large mammal. They shouldn't be able to shouldn't I say shouldn't be able to expand their populations like they do, but they do because they're because a deer will basically sacrifice everything for reproduction. And when I say sacrifice everything for reproduction, if they're living in like poor habitat or not the best habitat, deer, those will get smaller because obviously they can't bulk up like, you know, if they were living in awesome habitat, but they are not shutting down reproduction. They are going to crank out fawns every year like a nice, fat doe living in, you know, agricultural Ohio. Um, you know, whether those fawns survive or not because of, um, you know, the, her limited resources in, in, in being able to support them after they're born is, is besides the point. She's going to do her best. She's going to put them on the ground and roll the dice. If they make it, great. If they don't, she'll try again next year. But, yeah, their capacity for reproduction in any kind of habitat is, uh, is kind of what makes them so successful, I think, and amazing as a, as a large mammal. So we've learned all this stuff about deer, uh, and yet there's still more to learn, but we've learned the, everything that we've learned because, basically because of research studies. So could you just give us just a very – uh, broad overview of what goes what goes in the planning a research study and, and making it happen. I understand that there's a whole lot of details that go into it, but what are some of the basic things that that we would have to think about if we if someone listening to this decided they wanted to start a research study? Well, when it, when you talk about research, basically you need to start out. Research always starts with a question. So, what question are you asking? And how you get that answer. So that's just, that's the basics. And you need to remember that as you're moving through all these different aspects of a research project, sure, there's a whole lot of fun things that you can do and learn about. Um, but you really need to stay focused on what's your question and how do we get to that answer. So it's so important to have, um, when you're talking about research, a good uh, objective or hypothesis, and then from there build upon that. Um, but then you get into the logistics. Okay, so we have our questions. How are we going to answer that? So if we look at the deer forest study, it's you know how are deer interacting with the forest with regard to you know where their movements are how our plots, you know, vegetation being affected, all these other things. So, okay, so that's what we're looking to get. How do we get that? Well, then you have to look at, all right, we need to understand what harvest rates are and deer movements are, so that means we actually have to catch deer now. And, you know, looking at harvest rates and movement. So if we're catching deer, we need to tag them so we know which ones they are. We need to have a mechanism for 
uh, if they're harvested for hunters to be able to let us know that. So then there's that system we have to build on the back end. So that's why we have, you know, if you harvest one of our deer that is tagged, it has an 800 number on it and you can call it in. Um, so, you know, there's that arm of it. But then there's other thing about research that is always kind of a bummer is your budget because you can come up with the best project in the world, but if you don't have the means to support it, it those are the things you have to really take into consideration is what are the resources that you need, whether it be uh, flat out just money or time or personnel, all those things are factored in beforehand. So sure, you know, a lot of people ask, well, why aren't you looking at this? Or why can't you do that? Or, you know, different, different things that we absolutely would love to research or know the answer to, but the logistical constraints on that just make it impossible for us to do. about one of our partners, SOS Gear. SOS Gear is based in Montana and run by Chelsea, and she makes some great products out of paracord. Right now I'm holding a belt Chelsea made me just a couple weeks ago. This belt is absolutely gorgeous. I went with the black and black camo, but that's not even the best part. My father's been wearing the same style belt for a year, and it looks brand new. Other people I've talked to have worn their belts without any rips or frays for two, three, and even five years. There's a wide range of colors you can pick from, so you can make your own statement. Check out some of her products she's made over at her Instagram, SOSGearMT, or her Twitter, at SOSGearMT. You can order a belt of your own at SOSGearMT.com. That's SOSGearMT.com. Everyone you know, has grand plans until they figure out how much it's going to cost. Uh, you know, and then you have to just sort of adjust, I guess, as you, as best you can to make the really stretch that dollar as far as you can. Yeah, and we, ha you know, and there are ways to make that dollar stretch. You know, we can partner uh, with other groups. You know, we've had partnerships with other uh, conservation groups that have actually bought equipment and then given it to us for use, you know, so they'll come to us and say, hey, we'd like to, and it's almost easier that way. They want to give us money and we're like, no, 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 we don't want the money. <laughs> but if you'd like to buy this for us, we'd really appreciate that. And, you know, basically they buy something and then donate it back, then we can use it um, as, you know, different aspects of the study. But yeah, it, and it's really, it's really hard well, I guess it's not real. It's not hard to understand. Everybody works on a budget at some point in time, whether it be your household budget or your college, but you know, you're budgeting for your kids for college or or different things like that. There, you know, you would love to do this, but you can only afford that. So that really drives or dictates what we can and can't do. So one of the questions I really wanted to ask you, so I'm going to ask it now, is what's the what is your least favorite part of your job? And I'm basing I'm basing my excitement for this question on a previous conversation that we had, where I know 
what I would pick for my least favorite. So I'm curious to see <laughs> what your least favorite part of your job would be. My least favorite part of the job. Um, I think my least favorite part of the job is probably what everybody would say is the bureaucracy of dealing in whatever structure that you work in. Um, I And knowing that while as a biologist, I may know a lot about this particular topic, whatever it may be, I don't make decisions. I only make recommendations in my position. So um, it can get really frustrating when policy really doesn't match what um, the research is telling us or different management things. Um, and But you know what? That's part of the job. And unfortunately, they didn't really tell us that when I was in school. Although, actually, maybe in one of my wildlife management classes, they did. <laughs> I remember, you know, the, it, it's famous now. Everybody in the wildlife field has heard it. But, you know, wildlife manage, management is basically 10% wildlife management and 90% people management. Or you may hear those percentages shift a little bit. But that's basically what it is. Uh, and I was like, when I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, come on. That's. I don't know what they're talking about. And then you learn. <laughs> and then you grow up and then you learn. Um, but I think that's why, so while it's frustrating for me um, not to see certain things implemented because I'm not in a position or decision-making position, I think that feeds into what I love most about my job, which is the communication aspect of it. So perhaps well, I'm not communicating it right, or maybe if I communicate it better, more people will understand why we need to do certain things. So it's kind of it's kind of the two different sides to the same coin. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and, and now that you said it, I, I completely understand where you're coming from, but I really thought it was going to be uh, the CWD sampling uh, that you talked about that you had to do. <laughs> well, you know what? I think I'm, that's more – the answer that I gave is probably more of a holistic, you know, more broad career sense. But if you're talking about the nitty-gritty, what I do in my job that I do not like, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, <laughs> it's deer aging and brain scooping. Um you know, deer aging, we do every year uh, 30 teams in the game commission, you know, two to three people per team. We descend upon hundreds of processors across the state, and I spend three weeks of the year barrel diving to pull heads out. And, yeah, by by the third week, there's a, there's a whole lot of jokes being said and you know stand clear the last head in the barrel is <laughs> always the soupiest head and you while you want it to be cold you don't want it to be too cold because you have to work outside most of the time and your hands freeze with a metal jaw spreader but then again you can't have it too warm because the week of deer heads in a barrel that you have to go to the bottom, a 50-gallon drum that you have to go to the very bottom of, 
Yeah, that's, yeah. that's not fun. Yeah, there's not a whole lot uh, that grosses me out, but I feel like that would probably be one of them. <laughs> that's, uh, that doesn't sound a whole lot like, like you know a what? Lot fun to me. You know what, Jason? Perhaps you should um, come out with me one day. You're to your age. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of things that you do that I would like to join and volunteer my time to do. That is one I'm not sure I'm going to take you up on that offer. <laughs> Ah, you know, and that's the thing. Photographs, photographs do relay well, but it's never, you can't smell a photograph. And that is, you know, part of the experience is the odor that follows you around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so bring up the topic CWD. Uh, I don't want to dive too much into it just because that can be three or four podcast episodes all on its own. Uh, but just should hunters really be concerned about CWD? Uh, I think they should. I certainly am. Um, you know, chronic wasting disease was, I had my, my introduction into this career, this field, um, with chronic wasting disease in Minnesota back in 2002, because that's when it was originally discovered in Wisconsin, uh, which was the first time it had been found east of the Mississippi. And it really changed the game with regard to chronic wasting disease, because prior to that, nobody really knew about it. Nobody really cared about it. It was in Colorado and Wyoming, and that was all well and good. But, you know, nobody noticed, really. Um, when it came to Wisconsin, with Wisconsin and their whitetails, that that deer herd is very the complexion of that deer herd is very different from anything that is found in Colorado and Wyoming, and that's when people really took notice. And you know, this disease is very it's difficult to relay why it, it's important and different because of the nature of the disease. It's a very slow-moving disease. Uh, it takes over a year for an animal to show that they're even sick. Uh, unlike hemorrhagic disease, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, which we see um, flare-ups of in Pennsylvania every you know, it can be every year, but, you know, large outbreaks of EHD usually only occur every five, five years or so. And people get much more wound up about that disease because they see a large number of animals die in a short period of time. And I never get wound up about EHD because I know it's a seasonal passing thing. And because what I know about white-tailed deer and their incredible ability to reproduce, I know that even if there was a large lot in a small localized area, I know those deer are coming back in a few years and everything will be fine. And that, and it's a virus and the vector that causes it, those little midges that fly around, they die at the first frost because so, so that's fine that, that that outbreak is over. Unlike chronic wasting disease that, you know, is around basically forever, um, if you're not lucky like New York and, you know, find it quickly or 
you have a very difficult time of removing it from your landscape. So then you have to learn to live with it um, and do your best to try to manage the um, manage the impacts of it because there are impacts. And it's a prion disease, which is a brain disease, and it's that disease. We, there is a human form of, of a prion disease. Um, there's also a, a bovine form, which is, you know, known as mad cow. And prion diseases, there's not, while we know stuff about them, we don't know everything about them. And we're still learning. And I think that, you know, the more we learn about this class of diseases, the less, the less and less uh, comforting it is because we just keep learning more and it's just, it's, none of it is ever good news, which is unfortunate. I hope one day we get some good news about prion diseases, but right now I haven't seen any. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping as well. It's definitely something that uh, I'm reading up as much as I can about as new research comes out because I feel like it is something that personally, something that I uh, am concerned about just because, you know, the, the main reason that, that I hunt and the main reason why a lot of people hunt is uh, for the food uh, to be able to, to eat the meat. Uh, so as of right now, uh, at least within the last couple of days, I haven't heard, but uh, you, there hasn't been any human cases uh, coming from eating deer meat, but the CDC recommends that if you have a deer that's tested positive, that you not eat that meat. Uh, would you eat the meat of a deer that tested CWD positive? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going to follow the recommendations of the CDC, and uh, no, uh, I would not. And, you know, the only thing that you are going to find in my freezer is venison. I mean, that we do in my family, that that is our – our protein source. We we don't buy beef at the store. We don't um, n- none of that. The only that's what we eat. <laughs> and it would it if if we hunted in an area uh, that was that went CWD positive, my my game plan would be that that deer gets tested and it is not consumed until the results are in. Now, the test for chronic wasting disease is not a food safety test. Um, In fact, you're never going to get a negative chronic wasting disease uh, result. You're only going to get a not detected. Uh, You'll get positive or not detected. Those are, or unsuitable for testing, but we'll just put that one aside. Um, So it's either going to be positive or not detected. And because, and that's because of the nature of the disease. If if an animal is recently infected, um, it's very, it could slip, you know, the test could miss it if it's a recent infection, meaning those prions haven't collected in, in a portion of the brain that, that can be seen with the test. So you're never going to get a negative test. And like I said, 
that test is not a food safety test. However, it is a, another piece of information for the hunter or consumer of that venison to make an informed decision on. So it all depends. It, now, uh, have people consumed CWD-positive animals? Absolutely. Um, knowingly and I would, I'm sure, unknowingly have consumed them. Uh, but the people that have knowingly done it, it depends what your risk tolerances you know are, are you willing like you said there have there has been no documentation of chronic wasting disease crossing that species barrier and it appears to be a very strong species barrier um, so if if your risk tolerance you're okay with that then then you make the decision um, because Ultimately, the decision to consume any harvested animal lies with the hunter. Uh, so I jaywalk. I'm willing to take that. <laughs> that is, uh, that's my risk tolerance. I'm willing to do that. But uh, my risk tolerance for consuming chronic wasting, uh, an animal that tested positive for chronic, no, there is no risk tolerance for me there. <laughs> Very well said. Well, Janine, I want to be mindful of your time, and we're uh, coming up on a, a pretty long podcast now. So I want to thank you for coming on with us, and I uh, hope to maybe be able to get you on in the future to talk a little more about uh, some of the research that you're involved in. Uh, thank you so much. It was It was great talking with you. And that'll do it on another episode for us. I really want to thank Janine for coming on. She's an absolutely wonderful person. Uh, since our uh, interview, I uh, saw her down at her office as I was down at the Southwest Regional Office for a educational seminar and got to have a, a nice chat with her again. And I love having conversation with her. Not only is it uh, extremely informative for things that I want to know, uh, but she's uh, it's also extremely fun. She's just a, such a fun and nice person. Uh, so uh, I, I'm really thankful for having her on. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, later this week, we'll be releasing uh, the full ep uh, conversation and interview with Janine uh, all in one episode. So uh, if cutting it in two and doing a part one and part two didn't really suit your needs, uh, you know, you didn't really like how choppy it was, uh, just be patient. Uh, you'll be able to listen to it all through uh, without any interruptions. Uh, here coming out probably right around Friday, so later this week. Uh, one last thing for you, if you could, just give us a quick rating and review on your uh, listening app of your choice. Uh, that will definitely uh, benefit us in the long run. And tell your friends, uh, let them know uh, that we're out here trying to spread the good word about conservation and hunting. And as always, you can go ahead and, and get a hold of us through the Anchor app. You can also get a hold of us on Twitter at conserve underscore wild on Instagram at conserve the wild or through email info dot conserve the wild at gmail dot com. Until next time, stay wild.